0: So we've come to the end of our Belong sessions. Uh, I've loved every evening. Um, A big thank you to everyone who's been involved, speakers, everybody, Um, table, uh, Zoom group leaders and and so on. And Gavin, you've put this together really well with a team. So it's not the end of the unity in the midst of uh, diversity. It's actually the beginning. Okay, and so hopefully we can continue the story that Jill has talked about as we move into the um, uh, coming years. And I think, you know, someone like Jill and others will be very key to that in helping us move forward. So tonight I'm going to, I'm addressing the wonder of men and women, uh, diversity in the church. What I, what, what. Uh, I've heard someone else call beautiful difference. Although I've made that sound a bit flowery, this is most definitely controversial as Gavin said and, and as Jill's story highlighted. Sadly, also in this mix, um, it's, it's just like every other kind of ethical area in the church. The church often has undelivered on its promise to women. Sadly, we have as a church, in fact, denigrating and patronising attitudes towards women have all too often infected church culture. But like my mum used to say, it's better out than in. And actually, that's what I've really enjoyed and cherished about these last few weeks, your honesty and vulnerability. Uh, And so today I felt drawn to one to help us with this topic, felt drawn to one of, one of the most difficult passages about this subject, and there's a few, um, to help us approach challenging scripture in a godly and robust manner. So let's uh, dive straight in, as it were. Let's read one Timothy two eight to fifteen. There's been a real resurgence about this uh, passage again in a lot of um, a lot of. Uh, uh, a lot of blogs etc so don't throw any zoom tomatoes at me let's read it therefore i want the men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing i want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Don't like the Apostle Paul now, do you? Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, I thank you for this scripture. I thank you that all scripture is God-breathed. And I thank you even for these difficult passages. Help us, teach us, be our teacher tonight, Lord God, and help us understand what your heart is for your creation, your image bearers, equal but different image bearers. And I pray tonight, after we've um, been through this topic, just a glimpse of it, that in our discussion groups, we can really come to understand. I pray for new Christians, new people uh, who are starting this journey, this walk with you. I know that if I'd have read that 20 years ago, I would have found that very, very difficult. Yeah, I still do today. Um, but I pray, Lord God, for confidence and patience in you. Just like Jill said, I trusted Jesus and I trust his word in Jesus' name. Amen. So there you have it. Difficult passages often shape us the most. Jesus is not some comfy cardboard cutout. That's what I love about the Christian faith, that he's not not some cardboard cutout that you can fit into your daily lives and thoughts. Rather, he's a sovereign God who churns it all up and brings about his kingdom newness. So the late John Stott's commentary on this uh, really, is really helpful uh, in this passage in Timothy. He says there are two things to consider when you hit difficult passages like this. This is a very difficult passage. The first is the principle of harmony. God doesn't contradict himself. Therefore, what does the whole Bible say? That's what we need to ask ourselves, the panoramic view. And secondly, he describes the principle of history. God doesn't speak into a cultural vacuum either. He speaks into real situations and times. So context is important. Harmony, history. So with these two things in mind, let's dig in. Firstly, what is this passage not saying? Well, it's definitely not saying that god somehow values men more than women god is neither chauvinistic nor feministic and to show this paul takes timothy in this passage back to the garden of eden he says in verse 13 for adam was formed first then eve and adam was not the one uh, deceived it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner now, what he's doing there, he's taking us out of the heated cu- of out of heated culture for a moment and asking us to question what was it meant to be like before the fall, when think you know uh, when uh, you know God's initial creation. So let's go there a bit, shall we, for, to start with. You'll have noticed that throughout the creation story in Genesis 1, God is making things one after another, one after another. And throughout, as you read Genesis 1, he's excitedly saying, good, this is good, good, boy, that's good. But then we get to this car crash moment in Genesis 2. After creating man, he says, hmm, not so good. How are you feeling, fellas? It's not good. Genesis 2.18. It's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Jill referred to that earlier. God says man needs a woman equal but different to complement him, help him, in the bigger kingdom plans and purposes of God. And that word helper, by the way, isn't referring to ironing shirts and hoovering and washing the dishes, as some of you guys might think. No way. In Hebrew scriptures, that word helper or Ezer is overwhelmingly applied to God himself as uh, as his children's helper, you and me. There is nothing inferior about it at all. Men and women need each other to complementarily in other words combining each other's unique gifting and equality in such a way as to enhance or emphasize the qualities of each other equal but different we need each other to bring god's perfect kingdom into being Uh, In fact, in in, in Genesis 2.23, Adam sings when he sees her, his excitement at her sameness. Often we've concentrated more on differences than sameness, but the Bible does very much talk about our sameness, our similarities. Adam starts singing, this is born of my bone, this is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. We're, we're, a very, we're the very same image, um, we're, we're of the very same essence, image bearers of God. And that's so true of life, isn't it? Inshallah, I have a godly, beautiful, faithful wife to show me what's wrong, what's right, where we're going in sickness and in health. I'm not very good in sickness, through highs and lows, kicking my butt gently along the way. Uh, in the church, we have ladies like Helen and Shirley and Jill and Liz and Karen and John and Angela and Faye and Sue and Jen and Marvash and Haley and Julie and Ellen and Becca and Lou and Deborah and Lynn and Val and on and on and many, many, many more to make sense of our decisions and leadership. And the same is the same in my workplace. Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 tells us a lot. That's why Paul leads Timothy there right at the beginning. Now, let's draw back, shall we, and see the bigger panorama of the Bible. Let's start with Jesus. Did he value women? Well, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? As well as the 12, Jesus traveled with lots of women. Luke chapter 8 tells us that for sure. Some of these women were famous leaders in the early church. Jesus, God himself, chose to be born to a woman. That's a massive statement in Jesus' day. Again and again, we see Jesus affirming and honoring and lifting up women, often at the expense of some of his male disciples. The woman at the well, the woman who washes Jesus' feet, the woman caught in adultery, Mary and Martha. Then we get to Pentecost, don't we? When God pours out his presence on all people, men and women. Acts 2.17, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Well, what about the apostle Paul who wrote this terrible passage? He must be a chauvinistic pig. Yeah, ladies? No. In Romans 16, Paul greets the church and lists key people in his ministry team. And probably half of that list are women, women who Paul honoured and loved and cherished and who were key to the exponential growth of the early church. In in the Greco-Roman world, um, that despised singleness in women, killed baby girls at birth regarded women's testimony as unreliable, Christianity gave women her purpose and dignity. In a world that discarded the widow, Christianity raised the essential importance of caring for her. In a world where sons got all the inheritance, God pours out his sonship, his eternal treasures, his salvation, his love on men and women equally. That's what God thinks. That's how God sees it. But there is also differences, not inequalities. That's really important. Unique, valued, and um, beautiful differences. <clears throat> so, what are some of these differences that Paul kind of talks about in this passage, bar the obvious biological ones? I might be a doctor, but I'm not going to be talking about any of those differences in any significant detail today. But they are important they do tell us something of god's how god has created us as image bearers who are different also it's important to remember that these differences were put there before the fall this is how god intended things to be so how can uh, real men be godly men see verse 80 addresses them first therefore i want the men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing or grumpiness. That's uh, my translation at the end. Men, he wants you to be passionate worshippers, diligent prayers, using your strength to love and not persecute. Not by being passive, but by exercising godly, sacrificial like Jesus's headship. Another beautiful kingdom gift headship that's something else that Jill referred to which initially caused her issues so what was so what's headship well in Genesis 2 Adam was created first he is established as head a representative to lead God's intentions on the earth but then we hit Genesis 3 don't we this is where everything goes from being very very good to very very bad And what's fascinating is it starts with a gender role problem. Eve, our first mother, sins against God by reversing the roles in a family, assuming headship. And Adam, this is the biggest sin, sits there and does nothing. This is a lesson for us. Um, Guys, don't be passive in life. Don't be passive in the church. Don't be passive in marriage. Don't leave our godly women vulnerable. You, You see, being the head doesn't mean that you're the king or the lord or the head of the remote control. It means that you take responsibility sacrificially. That's what it is to be the head. Adam saw everything that was going on and did nothing romans 5 romans 12 romans 21 because of one man's sin the human race falls but it was eve it's adam's responsibility though sin entered the world because adam did nothing um in some ways that was actually the first sin doing nothing uh, 1 corinthians eleven three. it says but i want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That's a phenomenal statement. Um, if we can get over the offence that it sometimes cause us, causes us, that's a phenomenal statement. The head of Christ is God. It might not, it, it, and, and it might not sound phenomenal, But it's actually a statement describing why headship is so wonderful. It's saying that human authority is something that acts out and works out because man is under the sacrificial, I'll die for you, I'll wash your feet, I'll give, give, give to you, authority of Christ. It's also saying that godly submission is a good thing, not an issue of inequality. Don't get shirty about it, God says, why? Because that's what God does in the Godhead, the three-in-one Godhead, the Trinitarian economy of God, co-equal, co-eternally, co-eternal, but functionally different. If it's good enough for God, it's good enough for mankind. The head of Christ is God. But we find this tough to swallow, I know that. And this shouldn't come as a surprise either. God said that exactly, that, that, that would exactly happen. Back in the uh, garden, Genesis 3, again, we see the origins of gender wars. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says, and between your offspring and hers. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now there's conflict, now there's mistrust, now there's violence and abuse. Me, 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 me too. What can we get? What can I get out of these men, women relationships? Human culture has got it wrong. God's kingdom culture has the answer. God's church, you and me, is to be the place where this is modeled and shone like a city on a hill, like a bright light for its beauty and wonder. So men, including me, play your part. Don't do nothing. What about women? What does it say here about them? Verses 9 to 12. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. That first bit sounds like the school I used to go to when I was young. Let me tell you what this is not saying. He's not saying women dress like Nanny McPhee, look terrible. No, it's it's a cultural thing he's dealing with. He's saying in a nutshell, women, I want you to be godly women. Um, not swayed by culture and TV programs like Loose Women and Hello Magazine, but swayed by holiness and godliness. Yeah, this is a big one for our kids too. I think how and how we parent. Their pressures, I believe, are even greater, and they need strong, firm, loving, kind, encouraging, faith-filled, passionate parents who are clear about what and why about the what and the why when it comes to being godly men and women, especially when in their culture, they are always swimming upstream, up against the river flow. So this is a call to find your identity in him and not the other stuff and relationships and superficial pleasures that our culture underlines is more important. Proverbs 31 says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, another tough bit is verse 13. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Boom. The people in Paul's day would have fallen off their chairs when they read this, but for different reasons to you, who are already falling off your chairs right now. You see, in Paul's day, it was the men who did the religious stuff. And the women would come along with their kids and look after them. And after that, get stuck into the social bit, cooking, food, etc. They would often be on the edge of the meeting while the men did uh, the spiritual stuff, the spiritual bits of um, of, of the day. This reminds me very much of my upbringing and my Hindu upbringing my, in, in the Hindu temple. This was how the religious days played out. It looked very much like this. But Paul says, quiet, this isn't right. I want more Phoebes to lead my church. I want more Priscilla's to teach. I want you to learn and share the good news. Men on their own are no good. That's what God says. Women, I want you to inspire other men and women. Grace has set you free. Now, and down, be in full submission and attentive. Jesus wants you to grow. They would have never hurt men addressing them in a religious context like that. What about the teaching bit? It says here, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Context again here is really important. Paul is not saying women can't speak in church, remember, history and uh, harmony. He's not even saying that women can't teach at all. We know that. There's loads of places and passages in the Bible where men, including Paul describing them, where men and women are encouraged to teach, prophesy, and speak. Now, this prohibition, if you like, if you want to call it that, here is about church authority and governance and guarding. The big problem you see when trying to make sense of this passage is is actually a structural one. In our Bibles, 1 Timothy 2 is separated from 1 Timothy 3, but actually it's one one letter They flow together. Um, And in 1 Timothy 3, this is all about godly ordered leadership in the church. It's saying, look, you need male headship, eldership structures here, Timothy, or you're going to get into difficulty. You need men and women, deacons too, all of them in team, non-hierarchically. No one's more important than the other, but they do have different functions and they're to come and function together as God intended. Church leadership, that's why I kind of get in, I, I, I don't really, I'm not really that worried about, you know, who ministers and vicars and this, that and the other, because el- leadership structures in the church are apostles, deacons and elders. Yeah. And according to scripture, elders are, are, is, is primarily a, is, a, is a male role apostles and deacons uh, are, are male and female in the Bible, or certainly that's my interpretation of it. So why is eldership in the Bible um, and Jubilee Church a male role? That's a big question which a lot of people ask when they come and join us. Well, once again, going back to the headship function, it's an issue of headship. It's a good thing. It's a God thing. The church, you see, is the family of God. We talked about that in our Spotlights Vision series, didn't we? Like husbands to wives is a good thing. It's like God is saying, just like I want your smaller households to be lived out well under the fathering headship, guarding role of the man in the household, I also want the household of God, the church, to be lived out under the same loving sacrificial headship of a few anointed men who have shown their ability to lead in their smaller households, ripped large in the church. Not perfect, not perfect men, but men who have shown something. Yeah, this is how Andrew Wilson puts it. He was written a recent paper, actually, just a few days ago uh, on the Think Theology website. Um, and he actually called it Beautiful Difference. And he writes this, the principle of male eldership from the, uh, starts from the twin observations. A, that elders are fundamentally guardians of the church. And B, that in every phase of redemptive history, from the garden to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the ministry of Jesus, to the New Testament church, and on into eschaton, eschatology, the future, The individuals charged with guarding the people of God and protecting her from harm have been men. God is bringing a nurturing, protective order to the church family. And we each play our parts, men and women. So in conclusion, I hope that's given you a few things to talk about. In conclusion, I believe the church will flourish and Jesus will be exalted as we faithfully understand, submit and apply the prince, the, the prince of Beautiful Difference across our big family, not just in our home, but across the church. We need to uh, pray for God to help us because this is open to abuse. Yeah. We need to cry out for unity, God's unity, in the midst of God's magnificent, multicolored, multi-stratified diversity. So thank you for listening.